James 5:12 through 20. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth, the earth bore its fruit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Megan. We are, this is our last week. We've been in the book of James for several weeks. This is our last week in the book of James, looking at the reality of the community in which God has called us and placed us and blesses us. A couple years ago, uh, my wife and I went out west on an anniversary trip, and like uh, good Midwesterners who aren't used to the Mountain West, we were scared of the one thing you're supposed to be scared of if you're from Indiana, which is grizzly bears. So we watched, I don't know if this was a good idea or not, we watched a video put out by the National Park Service, which was basically a scared straight video communicating to you that you simply cannot, cannot outrun a grizzly bear. As I remember, the video simply consisted of showing this maybe six, seven, eight hundred pound grizzly bear in a cage, and they opened the door of the cage, and the bear ran with breathtaking speed for a long way, just to convince you that you should do what you can to avoid the bears because you cannot outrun the bears if you're a normal human being. Right? So like me or Carmen. But what if you, it got me thinking, what if you were, not an, you were not a normal human being? What if you were the fastest human being in the world? If you were Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is a Jamaican sprinter who is currently the world record holder in the 100 meters. He is unbelievably fast. During the 100 meter, Usain Bolt, that, that his record-breaking run, touched for a second 27 miles an hour. A human being running 27 miles an hour. That may not seem fast in the age of automobiles, but go try to run as fast as you can. Downhill, you'll be about 16 miles an hour, maybe, until you fall. Okay, so 27 miles an hour. Can a grizzly bear touch 27 miles an hour? Answer only briefly on its way to its top speed of 40 miles an hour. So Usain Bolt is in trouble running from a grizzly bear. But what if... What if it wasn't that? What if it was, <clears throat> what if you had a little bit more head start and you could, maybe you could outrun the bear over distance? Maybe you could outrun the bear over distance. The world record holder in the mile is a Moroccan runner named Hishan El Garage, who ran the mile, I can barely say this out loud, in three minutes and 43 seconds. Now, if you've ever run a mile at one time, <laughs> you realize that's really fast. Can a bear, can a grizzly bear run a mile in three minutes and 43 seconds? No. 
A grizzly bear runs a mile in two minutes and 24 seconds and can do that for two miles. Here's another way to say it. A grizzly bear can run at Usain Bolt's top pace for two, top speed at, for two miles. So Usain Bolt's in trouble. Hisham el is in trouble. But what if, so what if the bear caught you? You're going to overpower the bear? This is a little bit hard to, to figure out. The strongest man in the world right now is a Canadian named Mitchell Hooper. Now, I don't know how you determine the strongest man in the world. In this particular contest, he lifted, lifted what's called the Atlas Stone, which is the big round ball, looks like a boulder, 511 pounds up and over a, a bar about his waist. He is the strongest person in the world to lift the Atlas Stone. Bears don't exactly line up for strength contests, but grizzly bears have been seen in the wild moving 600-pound boulders with a paw to get food. I think Mitchell Hooper's in trouble. But what if it weren't a test of strength but of ferocity? And violence, maybe you just fight the bear straight up. The heavyweight champion currently in MMA is John Jones. Some of you know John Jones. He's six foot four, 250 pounds. He is a uh, breathtakingly violent and effective fighter. <laughs> uh, he's 27 and one in his career. That one loss is disputed. What if John Jones just went toe to toe with a grizzly? Let's just say he's going to square up, man up on a grizzly. 6'4, 220 versus nine foot tall, 600 pounds with four-inch claws and three-inch teeth with a bite pressure of 1,000 pounds per square inch. John Jones is in trouble. Okay, so Usain Bolt, Hisham el Garouge, Mitchell Hooper, John Jones. Four people that could not withstand a grizzly. Now, let's take any four of us. Let's take any four of us. Say we went out to Glacier or Yosemite and we're ambling along a path and it wasn't just any four of us, it was the four least in shape people here, right? We're just barely making it, and one of us is so slow, we would lose to a turtle at top speed. One of us can't uh, run more than 20 meters without collapsing. One of us is so weak, we can't even carry the pack on our back. And one of us, uh, what am I at here? Uh, we, oh, one of us is so fearful, we're scared of our own shadow right? Which of those four is most likely to get attacked and destroyed by a grizzly bear? Answer, none of them. None of them. A grizzly bear has never attacked a group of four or more people ever. John Jones, Mitchell Hooper, Garage, and who, oh, Usain Bolt are in trouble. The four least effective physically people in this room together are fine. Truth is, if you're going to navigate the dangers and uncertainties of the mountain west and journey on those trails, there is safety and life-giving presence in community. Safety in numbers. At the end of the book of James here is what we see. You're going to journey through the uncertainty and danger of life together. There is a life-giving presence and safety in this thing called Christian community. People bought by Jesus and nurtured and nourished by the gospel of Christ. This is the intended context for God blessing his people. And I don't mean blessing like everything's great all the time, but ministering his grace to people when things are great and when things aren't great. In, on the front of your insert here on the book of James, we've been calling this, this series Wisdom for Dissidents. Wisdom for dissonance. And in there I wrote that paragraph at the bottom, a couple sentences in. The wisdom in James does not align with the prevailing wisdom of any age. 
the gospel of Jesus creates loving dissidents, those who dissent from the dominant way of being and instead live in step with the kingdom of God. This dissent may be subtle or strong, but it is always a result of following Jesus in a culture committed to following many other things. Further, this type of wisdom pictures an alternate way of life for a world that desperately needs it, and this is a community of dissidents. Mike Spencer just prayed about what it, we live in a country that allegedly says one nation under God. If you've been here long enough, you know we, we think that's a suspect question, a suspect statement. Uh, we are called within that place to be people who actually live as a holy nation, those who are marked by the gospel of Christ and by the renewing power of Jesus. We just sang in this, the song we just sang, Jesus paid it all. That final chorus, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And we might think, shouldn't we say, and will raise this life up from the dead? And the answer is actually no. If we look at the promises of the gospel, what we see is that in Christ, if we have union with Christ, there is a way we've already been raised with him. Uh, Ephesians 2 says, we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. That means there's a reality about me and you if you're in Christ. In spite of what you see talking to you right now, this is a person who is already resurrected in some substantial way, already spiritually resurrected with Jesus because of his own resurrection and my union with him by the spirit in spite of myself. And what I'm looking at right now is a community that is raised with Christ. That is the profound spiritual reality about you. This means we should have profound hope. No matter whatever darkness is making its way into your life or into your family, you are not cut off from hope because you have been raised with Christ and the power of the age to come has worked its way back into you and together into this community in spite of what we might be or might not be in any one moment. And that's what this is getting at at the end of the book of James. In your insert in red so you don't miss it, the main point, <laughs> Jesus nurtures a community of restoration in a world, I'm gonna contend, in a world of isolation. Jesus nurtures, friends, and nourishes by the gospel a community of restoration. Not perfect, not even together half the time. I and mean, we really struggle sometimes. But it is, by the Spirit, a community of restoration in a world that pushes isolation. James 5, verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Taylor touched on this last week. It's a bridge between the passage he preached and this passage, saying a lot of things, but the very least communicating that we have very little ability. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't swear by things outside of yourself because you can't control things outside of yourself. We can barely control ourselves, and half the time we don't know even what we're, we're doing. We are dependent creatures called together to be a dependent congregation on the Lord. And in distress, it is particularly easy to forget that we are embedded in a community. In distress, it is particularly easy, particularly easy to believe that we are isolated. And remember the context of James. These are folks that are under the gun. They are persecuted. They have, some of them have lost their homes. Some of them have, uh, they've, uh, they're, they're losing their jobs. Some of them are sick. Some of them are hurt. They're being pressured. They needed that, hear this. And I would say we need to hear this reality right now. We live in what many have called 
a loneliness epidemic in our culture, an isolation epidemic. About five years ago, almost six years ago, the American Psychological Society declared at the National Conference that there is a health concern in America that has has equaled or now surpassed obesity as a physical health concern, and that is loneliness. Loneliness. Loneliness, perceived loneliness in our body sets off this cascade of in you know, in-body realities, the stress response system, it compromises our immune system, it puts our amygdala in overdrive, it makes us feel terrible, it makes us interpret things as worse than, than they are. Loneliness. It's been documented in several places, and this can't be the first time you hear this, that social media actually makes loneliness worse. Have you heard that? Have you heard that before? Social media makes loneliness worse. Many of us will say yes, and then go home this afternoon and get on Facebook. I get it. I'm with you. Um, that's especially true in teens. Now, that's not a criticism on teens. I think teens are especially social and especially geared for growing in sociality. And social media actually interrupts that because of what sociologists, psychologists, sorry for the nerd out, called weak ties. Social media presents relationships in a weak tie formula versus a strong tie formula. Weak ties give the appearance of connection, but without the actual emotional connection. So we read as if we read the environment as if there's more possibility, but there's less experience, and therefore the experience of loneliness increases. There's all kinds of research on this. Um, <clears throat> In 1985, so this has been growing. Loneliness has been growing in our culture for a long time, for since about the mid-'80s. In 1985, Duke University did a study where they asked just a whole range of people of all different ages, how many people do you have in your life who are confidants? That is, people you can tell anything to about your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the stuff you're celebrating, the stuff you're embarrassed about, and the modal number. That means that most people said Three. I have three confidants in my life. That was 1985. Three. So that, that's the most often given answer was three in 1985. 20 years later, 21 years later, 2006, the most often given answer to the question, how many confidants do you have in your life? The most often given answer was zero. Zero in just 20 years. And we know now that the, the isolating effect of social media since 2005, we are in trouble connection-wise, sociologically, when it comes to isolation and loneliness. 50% of Americans describe themselves as always lonely. 50% of Americans. Most common in the 18 to 22-year-old range. Loneliness has the same effect on our body as, I hate to say this, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, like, if you smoke 12 cigarettes a day and aren't lonely, don't think that's a win, right? Like, well, at least I'm not lonely. I'm smoking 14 cigarettes a day. That's not what I'm saying. Like, it's, we're not built. We're built for community. That makes sense, right? We're made in the image of God who exists in some way in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are built for connection. We are built from relationship, for relationship. Stephen March, who's a writer for The Atlantic uh, magazine, said a few years ago, we are experiencing levels of loneliness that our ancestors would be, could not believe at all, and we're more connected than we've ever been. Something is wrong. Okay? I have no idea to, what to do about any of that. But I do know the Lord's solution, which is 
gospel-centered, Jesus-fueled community. And that's what this is talking about at the end of James, a community of restoration. So first we have an encouragement for individuals and then a small group of people called elders and then the entire congregation. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So here we might call this a community of restoration of clarity in the isolation of extremes, the extreme in life of suffering or celebration. Both can leave us feeling alone. You you may know that. In suffering, when we're suffering, we feel like, oh, nobody else is experiencing this. Experiencing anything like this. And this is the biggest thing in the world. It's the biggest thing in my world. And the only thing I can see is the hardship and difficulty in front of me. I, we all understand that. It puts us in a very small world. Celebration can also put us in that small world. Maybe we've, we've really longed for something. We finally got it. And all of a sudden, we realize we spent a ton of our time chasing things that wasn't that great when we got it. Oh, I finally got that big promotion. And now I'm working more hours. That's interesting. I've got a better title that nobody cares about and can't remember, and I'm making a little bit more money, but I'm living in a very small world. And further, maybe there's nobody to really celebrate that with. Maybe nobody's really happy for me, and nobody wants to hear me talk about it for the ninth time, right? Maybe I'm, I'm just very alone in this. So suffering or celebration. The encouragement here, I think, is, is twofold. To remember, friends, we have a Savior who t- took on true human nature and still is truly, fully human. Jesus understands what it is to suffer and celebrate and is available to us in that. But the other side of that encouragement is, that, is a call to us that whether we're suffering or celebrating to, I don't know, go vertical, <laughs> Or to punch through that box our culture puts around us, like since the enlightenment of like, it's just you and your feelings. And that's all that's in your world and all that matters. To go vertical, to bring the Lord into our suffering or into our celebration. So when it's brought, when we bring the Lord into our suffering, it's something like, Lord, I'm not alone. You're with me in this. And you know what it is to suffer. You can help me. What are you teaching me in this? That's a, that is a singularly profound and helpful question and difficulty. Lord, what are, you, what are you teaching me? It is almost impossible to ask that question if we are not actually praying to God. That's why it says, are you suffering? Let him pray. What are, what are you teaching me? Who else is suffering in this way that I can come alongside? What are you teaching me to long for in the next chapter where all things are restored and renewed? These are the kind of... Uh, places we enter into when we are praying and suffering. What about being cheerful or celebrating? We begin to thank God. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all this stuff in my life. You know, typically, as, as Americans, we often think when good things happen, we think, when bad things happen, we think, well, somebody else is at fault. And when good things happen, we think, thank you, I'm great. I did this, right? I did this by myself. As if, Uh, Nobody helped us along the way, as if, you know, whatever discipline or skill we have or education we have wasn't inculcated into us by other family members or coaches or whatever. We'd say, I did this. Thanksgiving gets us outside of that little, you know, one-foot square we live in and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for all the people who've helped me along the way. Thank you. 
And also in, uh, in giving praise or thanksgiving when we're celebrating, it causes us to say, Lord, what are you helping me anticipate for the age to come? So this stuff is very simple to do, but very hard to remember. Oftentimes here, we said it for the last couple of weeks, this is you know, a quote we often say, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Let's extend this. For every one look we take at our suffering, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one look we take at our celebration, take 10 looks at Jesus. So simple question. I, Taylor and I get paid for asking questions like this. This is wild. This is the greatest job in the world. What are you celebrating? What are you celebrating right now? What are you really happy over if there's something? Have you praised God for that? Because if not, your world is shrinking. I get it. What are you suffering with right now? It is remarkable to me over the years to learn when we're suffering how slow we are to actually pray. I say, Lord, help me to see. Come into this situation. And so here's this commitment and invitation to become the kind of people who go vertical in our suffering, our celebration. I want to do that for my own self, but then also to become the kind of person who can do that with you in community and for you in community. This is part of the this is part of what happens in our community groups. It's very simple, but very hard to remember. We come and we celebrate something, and therefore we pray. Thank God for it. I mean, give each other a high five, but then we pray. If you're suffering with something, the temptation, I know this, I'm in a community group, the temptation, somebody comes in suffering with something, what we do is give answers, which is fine, but really it's better to ask the Lord to come into the situation. I'm seeing some of my community group people in here. I know, um, but... Um, but let's bring God into the situation because he is building a community of restoration in a world of isolation. Moving on, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, restoration of health in the isolation of affliction. Is anyone sick? This word, when we hear the word sick, we immediately think physical illness. That is part of what this means, but it is an intentionally broad and might even say vague term in the Greek. I put a quote from a commentator named Jeff Myers at the bottom of your insert here. Myers writes, the language used in James 5.14 for the sick, quote, sick person is intentionally broad. For example, including the injured and wounded. It's a broad word. It means afflicted. So as to provide the church with a pattern of ministering to all of those in its faith community who are weak and sick and troubled by darkness and depression and even intense spiritual doubt. So that's all... Look, when you're translating the Bible to English from the Koine Greek, you've got to make a decision on words. And like, well, I guess we'll go with sick. We can't, because you can't put that whole paragraph in for one word, right? Sick, some of your translations might say weak or afflicted, whatever. It just means it's a broad term for affliction of all kinds that are, that's hindering you, that's probably 
interrupting your ability to gather with the body of Christ. What is the command here? Look at verse 14 again. We're going to be, get very practical for a second, okay? This is how the church can function, New City, whatever church your home, your home church is. Verse 14, if anyone among you is sick, let him wait for the elders of the church to call him. I, oh, sorry, I misread that. If anyone among you is sick, let him reach, let him wait for someone else to reach out without letting them know. Okay, obviously, that's not what this says. Let him call for the elders of the church. It's a verb that means to call someone to yourself. When do you do this? There is actually an answer in this text. There are two, if, in the English, right, there's two words for sick. There's a word for sick in verse 14, and then down to 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. In verse 15, it's a different word, which actually means the worn out. If you're being worn out by this affliction, call for someone to come. Call for the elders to come. You don't, I don't know if you're being worn out. You know if you're being worn out, and people react differently in the same, the same things because you have different things going on in your life, you, whatever. We don't know. It's okay to be worn out, but if you're being worn out, the Scripture says, call for the elders to pray for you. So this is an encouragement. Let's see. Encouragement for the person in the weakened position. First, like, don't feel like you're a burden. Okay. If you're a Christian, part of New City, you're not allowed to feel like you're a burden on anybody here. Right? We're part of a family. You're not a burden. You're part of the family. Okay? You're not a burden. Not going to feel like we're a burden. But you have to reach out if there's an issue. Now, perhaps there can be other ways of going about it, right? But, it's not, but I want us to see that when the Bible gives instruction, the normative way is to say, if you're afflicted, make it known. Ask for help. Um, on the back of your bulletin each week, there's a list of elders, active elders, otherwise known as the session Daryl Cap, John McCallan, Mark Moss, Mike Spencer, who prayed for us this morning, Joe Sugimura, Dustin Sutherland, Caleb Winter. Also, Taylor Bradbury and myself are teaching elders in that group. We are all elders in the New City community. The call here, friends, is we have to let someone know. If you're being worn out by some affliction, it doesn't have to be physical, it could be mental, emotional, spiritual, addiction, whatever, let us know. We must not expect other people to read our minds. These guys, I just read those names, those are super dudes. They're gifted. None of them can read minds. We don't know. Uh, we must not expect others to read our minds. We, uh, we must not expect others to connect dots that we don't connect for them. Just assume that we're kind of dumb. I think that would be good, okay? Um, we must not expect that news will get back to the elders just because you told somebody. Over the years, I've had the privilege of being a pastor for almost 30 years now. We've heard things like, I'm not saying necessarily in this communi community, but sometimes, right? Yes, I said I was fine, and I was acting fine, 
but I wasn't, and I kind of expected you would know that. I'm, Taylor, have we heard that? Is this right? Oh, okay. Um, I expected you would follow up more than you did. I just thought you would know. Well, I told somebody. I put on Facebook. Okay, so can I just be honest with you? It's hard to keep track of stuff. This is the 26th Sunday of the year. On the second Sunday, I preached on Revelation 12. Do you remember what I said? Like, no, I don't even know what's in Revelation 12. Wait, was it important? Can you not, it's one out of 26. Can you not keep track of it? No, it's really hard. Okay, friends, it's hard to keep track of stuff. We have so much data coming into our, into our life, all of it. We have conversations with people. You'll have conversations after church with three people and go home and say, now, who was it that told me that, right? That's true for everybody. That's why the, the Bible kind of serves it back to the person. You say, hey, make it known, make it known. Okay, uh, that's, that's really how practically the church needs to work, right? Because you're, you know, until Jesus is actually your pastor in the restoration of all things, this is how it's got to work. The reality is that all the people are different, and different people handle different things in different ways. And we don't know often if it's a wearing you out. Sometimes we can initiate, but sometimes we don't. Um, so you're praying for yourself, that's one way it's going, and that you're like, oh my, I'm getting worn out, let's call for reinforcements, and I will say, as an elder, I think I can speak for all of them, it's a real privilege to be able to do this, to pray for our people, to come. Like, we did it last week. We went to somebody's house. We anointed with oil. We prayed for healing. It was awesome. It was, it's a privilege of the work, but we do need to be invited in. Uh, we've been asked many times over the years, and the number, we, the number of times we've said no is zero. Really? We love to do that. Okay. Um, so we pray, we anoint with oil. So what's up with the anointing with oil? Well, uh, oil did have medicinal purposes back then, as it does now. There's an old list of a thousand uses for frankincense from like the second century BC. Um, my sister sells essential oils. I hear about this all the time, okay? So it's not saying anything wrong with that. Just this not probably what I was talking about because they anoint uh, in the name of the Lord. So this is a ritual ceremony thing that keeps, it gets people in a story bigger than themselves. Oh, I'm being brought into something. Oil in the Bible is a sign of God's presence and his blessing. The, it's probably olive oil. The olive tree, especially in the Old Testament, is this picture of God's people. And you think if somebody's been afflicted, they can't come to church. They're anointed with oil as a reminder that you're part of this big story of the people of God into which I'm giving my spirit who I've, I've raised up together, be encouraged, okay? So that's probably part of the anointing oil there. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is not teaching that sickness is because of sin of the person, right? But we do now know what our creator always knew, that there are a lot of sin-related realities in our life that have an effect on us physically and emotionally and mentally. Sin-related realities like guilt and shame and anger and unforgiveness and bitterness, if these things are really active in our life, we do feel sick. Sometimes it can make us sick. And now we would say things like, well, that's because of you know, cortisol and all that kind of stuff. If fine, right? All the Lord's saying, the Lord knows this. He made us. So he's saying, forgiveness of sins is important in this. 
And if, you, if the person who's sick is harboring some sin or deep guilt, you come and you pray for them and assure them of forgiveness. And that gospel restoration goes a long way in their own healing. Especially if they've been out of fellowship and haven't been able to confess their sins, receive declaration of pardon, come to the table. Okay. Now let's talk about the healing. Verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. During the time of Christ, it certainly appears that there was an outpouring of miraculous healing power that served to verify the ministry and the establishment of the new covenant. It seems like it does not operate that, with that same intensity through church history. The fact that it's different now doesn't mean anything other than we're at a different point in redemptive history. Not that it never happens, just that it doesn't seem like we're reading the gospel of Luke every day in Indianapolis. I get that. Uh, there have been two times in my own life where when it was a, there was a physical healing in prayer, and I don't think I was, nobody, nobody there was any more faithful at any time. One time, some of you may remember Tommy Gordon. Do you remember Tommy? Older woman. She, she came to faith at New City when she was maybe 70, 72. Just uh, was a faithful, just beautiful woman. She moved to Texas and then passed on Went home to be with the Lord maybe four years ago. Um, terribly arthritic. Uh, and when we first met her, we, she couldn't come to church. She couldn't stand up uh, because the arthritis was too painful. And I'm, I can't remember. I know it was myself and Jeb Gaither. We went to Tommy's apartment. We anointed with oil. And I remember being down on one knee and praying because her knees hurt so bad and just praying and thinking, that was different. I don't understand that. And she was fine. She got up and came to church. Praise God, you know? Um, but that's a rarity. That's a rarity. I assume many other times there's been a strong encouragement and help as the elders have prayed for despair and, and discouragement and just feeling down, uh, and that God has used that. Sometimes it works one way. Sometimes it works another It says this prayer saves, or it's not like saving going to heaven, but uh, it means rescues or delivers the one who is ailing, and the Lord will raise them up. That phrase, raise them up, is used in the New Testament mostly to speak of the future. God raising up the people who are united to Jesus. So sometimes people are raised up in that moment physically or emotionally, but always that the hope of that connects them by faith to the future restoration and raising up that they will experience in their bodies, in their minds, in their emotions. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. We're not quite sure if they're still talking about the elders praying or broadening that out to the community. Just, we want to, at the very least, we want to say, we do want to have a community that is very honest about our need, that we confess our sin to each other appropriately and wisely, and we pray for each other. The righteous person praying here could simply be the, the person, if I asked who is righteous in this room, everybody would be slow to raise their hands. But if you're going to the communion table in a few minutes, you should raise your hand right away. Because in Christ, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you're connected to Jesus by faith, the scripture would teach us that his righteous robes are upon you. In Christ, you become a son 
or daughter of God, and he hears his children. And sometimes he likes to bring us along in what he's doing in this healing work and says, I want you to pray as I'm restoring and renewing people. And so we want to be, guys, we are a community for whom God had to die. This is our sin. Because there's no need to hide that. Right? Jesus had to die for us. It, it highlights his work when we confess our need and pray for each other and apply that need to each other. So, uh, and finally it ends here, this section, just with an encouragement. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth or that part in the Middle East, at least. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a regular man called to be a prophet. You all are regular men and women with the righteousness of Christ. Your prayers are effective. So pray, confess our sin to each other. We want to pray for each other. So just in summary here, I've taken this as a little bit of a rebuke this week, to be honest with you. A rebuke to normalize praying for people in distress. I think we get away from a little bit. I think in Protestant circles, my guess is we distance ourselves from the weirdness. Like there's like a weird Christian family, you know, that like the crazy charismatic stuff that's like, claim it, you know, all this stupid. Okay, I can't go there. But um, we want to say, I don't. Want to be associated with that. That's all. We're like, get rid of all of that. Like, okay, some of it's not bad. Well, let me say that. That's not true. <laughs> they're, they're after something good. I want to be after that too, right? There's a, like the, the vineyard movement says we want to be naturally supernatural. We want to actually just bring God into the room. Like, or acknowledge that he's in the room. Acknowledge that he's in our suffering. Acknowledge that he's in our celebration. Acknowledge that he's in our healing. And that we are not a people without hope, but we are a community of dissidents uh, in a world to despair. We are a people of hope fueled by the gospel. That's it. That's it. Should be normal. Somebody in this community right now is being worn out by some affliction. And I don't know. And the elders don't know. And nobody knows. Why is that? Why is that? We get the privilege of being a community of dissidents powered by alternate fuel source. Jesus, in a world that says you have to power yourself, we don't have to do that. Hey, let me just say one thing too. There is a, a strategy, just kind of mention it, in Christianity that teaches like there's guaranteed healing if you pray and if your faith is enough. Prosperity gospel. If you have enough faith, you will be healed. That is a lie of the devil, right? Resist it and reject it. It ignores a couple things. Well, first of all, pastor really just adds guilt on top of somebody who's already sick. <laughs> but it forgets that God numbers our days. There is an eventual sickness that takes out everybody <laughs> except Jesus. And it was our sin that took him out. It was our sickness. But every person dies often of sickness. God, is num- God has ordained that. Third, or there are several people in the Bible who that also that weren't healed. Right? Timothy had ongoing stomach ailments. And Paul didn't even say pray, he said, drink some wine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why Paul wasn't more spiritual then. Like, at least pray and drink wine, but he just said drink the wine. Okay, that's 1 Timothy 5. Epa- uh, Philippians 2, Epaphroditus was sick. Paul had to leave a man named Trophimus behind because he was sick. Like, that's at the very end of 2 Timothy. Like, it's the part you don't even read. Like, okay, yeah, 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 okay, done, next. Right? In that place, he said, 
Paul says, I left Trophimus behind because he was sick. What's going on? Does Paul not have enough faith? No, Trophimus was sick, and the Lord said, I'm not going to heal you. Paul himself was afflicted by something he calls a thorn in the flesh, of which most scholars believe was a physical ailment, about which Paul inquired of the Lord three times, please heal me, please heal me, please heal me, and the Lord says, no. No. But in Paul's seeking, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? He got an answer. That when you're weak, you're strong. You're weak, you're strong. So I cannot heal you. This is unto your good and making you long for the restoration of all things. There's isolation that comes in the extremes of affliction and in celebration and finally in wandering. Look at verse 19. James ends on a a sober warning. And it's 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those are weighty words. And after that period, there's nothing else in the book of James. That's it. So this is a call to the entire congregation. If someone brings them back, anyone, doesn't have to be an elder, ministry leader, parent, could be a kid, anybody. We have a mutual responsibility for each other in this community. So remember, in James, there was a lot of pressure to walk away from Jesus. There's a lot of disinclination. There's social pressure to walk away from Jesus, sometimes physical threat. To wander from the truth would have been from the truth of the gospel. It's already introduced for us in James 1, this confession that Jesus is the Christ and his grace is the only source of life. Wandering, uh, whether in belief or lifestyle, it isn't just like one misstep. Right? So we're not talking about being the police, you know, or like fastidious and everything. It's like wandering means they drift away. We say, oh my, my brother, my sister has drifted away. Is it a little bit fuzzy to discern that? It is. It's not neat. It's messy. So this is fuzzy. It is talking about people who are in the church or who used to be. So feel the weight of this warning. There are those who were in the church, either children who grew up in the church and seemed to profess faith, or those who came into the church and professed faith, who then walked away. And all James is saying is their soul is in danger. So blessed is the one who goes and brings them back. It's restoring them with a spirit of gentleness, right? It's not bringing them down. It's bringing them back. It's bringing you back into this thing. I have had the opportunity to be part of these conversations. It has never been easy. It has never been messy. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's very disappointing. But this is our call. And this is, we do this in little ways every single day. I know this. This is the call. And this is, it ends in really a stark place in the, with the book of James. Uh, they're in a tough time. They need to hear these hard but good words. It saves their soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Whether that's sins committed by them or maybe sins against others in the community, I'm not sure what that's talking about here. I know that seems like really challenging and really hard. But I just simply, as we go to the community table, want to ask this. Has not Jesus done the same thing for us? While we were wandering, when we were arrogant, 
when we knew, when we were yet weak, when we were yet enemies, Jesus steps into this earth and he tracks you down and he tracks me down. And he puts us into this thing called a community. It's messy. It's not perfect. Sometimes we barely have it together. Sometimes, maybe, even if you tell us you need help, we might forget. I hope not. But it could happen. It's not a perfect community. But it's a community with a great Savior. It's a community that is nourished by Jesus. And one of the ways we are mutually nourished each week is we come to the communion table. This, this is where Jesus meets us in our own frailty individually and as a community where we're strengthened to be for each other in a, communi- in a, in a world that wants us to be isolated. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this communion table. We're gonna, I want to pray. I invite you to go to the back, receive bread, either red wine or white grape juice. Bring it back to your seats. We'll all partake together. Guys, if you're in Christ, none of us here, if you're in Christ, you're not without hope. Whatever affliction you're facing, there is a community and a Savior who loves you. Let's pray. Your grace to us is matchless, Jesus. It is displayed sometimes in each other, and sometimes it's displayed in spite of each other. Uh, These are sober but hard and good words at the end of the book of James. Let us be shaped by it as is best according to your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.